Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. You'll notice this little sign up here, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Wasn't sure what version it was. If you were to go to my house on the porch, this sign is on our porch. It used to be uh, Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife updated, and uh, we became more modern and uh, went to 1 Thessalonians 5, and I thought, man, that's what I'm preaching from. So I brought a prop. I thought it would make things a little more interesting. Let's go ahead and uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, I thank you for the text that you have given us today as we continue in our study of 1 Thessalonians, actually concluding it today. Father, uh, we thank you for what we have learned throughout the summer and how you have reminded us of truths perhaps we've already known or imparted to us new truths. And Father, we pray that today would be no different, that these would not just be words on a biblical page, but they would be written under our hearts, and that we would not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you, especially those of you who may like hymns, you probably know the name Isaac Watts. He was a great hymn writer of the 17th and 18th century. By any estimation, Isaac was brilliant. He mastered Latin by age five. He mastered Greek by age nine. He mastered French by age 11, Hebrew by age 13, and learned additional languages later on in life. He was an astute student of God's word. Let me read to you an acrostic, a poem, based on his name, Isaac Watts. He wrote this at age seven. I am a vile, polluted lump of earth. So I've continued ever since my birth. Although Jehovah grace doeth daily give me, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me, come therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws, relieve me. Wash me in thy blood, O Christ, and God divine in part. Then search and try the corners of my heart, that I in all things may be fit to do Service to thee and thy praise to you. Not bad for age seven. Not bad at all. Many of Isaac's 600 plus published hymns were from the Psalter. He actually wrote hymns from 138 of the 150 Psalms in the Psalter. Hymns that perhaps are familiar to you. Let me just read a smattering of them. I sing the mighty power of God. O God, our help in ages past. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, 
We're marching to Zion or at the cross. You remember that? At the cross, at the cross when I first saw the light. Unfortunately, Isaac lived during a time period where hymnology was particularly poor. You would expect during his time period that there was a plethora of excellent hymns. That is not true. In fact, in the Reformed tradition, which is the tradition Isaac came out of, they required that their congregations sing the Psalms word for word without any explanation, without a Christological, a New Testament view on an Old Testament text. In other words, there was absolutely no creativity to the hymnology during the time of Isaac. Now, I know this wouldn't happen here, but one particular day, Isaac was 18 years old. He was walking home from church, and he was grousing about how terrible the service was. He went on and on about how lousy the service was, what a waste of time it was, especially the music. And so his father, as a father might be prone to do, said, son, if you think it's so bad, why don't you write something better? And so the gauntlet was thrown down, and that week Isaac wrote his first published hymn, which was sung that Sunday in the congregation. The congregation was so enamored by the hymn that for the next 104 weeks, two years straight, every week, Isaac showed up with a brand new hymn that the congregation sang. Now understand that the congregation loved his music, but his tradition did not. Isaac Watts who today we would call a traditionalist, was a radical in his day. His was contemporary music, and he was roundly rejected by all of his tradition. His songs were not sung in the cathedrals. They were not sung in the churches. They were considered to be out of bounds, maybe on the edge of heresy, because he had the gall not to go word for word from the Psalter, but to actually explain the Psalter much like a sermon would and to view the Psalter from Christ-centered, Christological eyes. Let me make a comment. Sometimes we think that the worship wars is only a 20 and 21st century phenomenon. Actually, if you study church history, you know that the worship wars people demanding their preferences, their traditions, in spite of orthodoxy, those kind of wars have been fashioned throughout history, throughout the church, century after century after century. So today, Isaac Watts would be the music of traditionalists. In his day, he was thought to be heretical way beyond the norm. That was this particular man. Now let me tell you about one particular hymn he wrote. It was out of Psalm 98. It was about the king coming. And he had the gall to look at Psalm 98 through Christological eyes, particularly through Luke 
10, or excuse me, 2, 10 and 11, where the angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so he took Luke 2 and Psalm 98, and he married the two together. Anyone know what that hymn is? Joy to the world, which was roundly rejected in his day as a heretical hymn, and we sing it all the time at Christmas. He was talking about the king coming. He was looking at Psalm 98 through New Testament eyes and recognized that Psalm 98 was the incarnation. It was God becoming man. It was the birth child of Jesus. It was the king coming. And yet because of personal preference, rather than theological accuracy, that hymn was rejected. A hymn about joy was rejected by a legalistic church. Well, today I think Paul would say that he would not be with those who would reject that kind of truth. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18, that you and I should rejoice always, that we should pray without ceasing, that we should give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and for me. By way of introduction, I want to make three opening comments about these three phrases, and then we'll look at each one individually. The first comment is this. All three phrases are in the imperative. They're in the command form. These aren't suggestions. These aren't thoughts that we ought to put into our life when things are going well. The text does not say rejoice when you win the lotto. It says rejoice always. The text does not say pray at mealtime. It says pray without ceasing. The text does not say give thanks when you're having a good day or week or month. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the first observation is that all of these are commands. The second observation is they're all commands in the plural. Rejoice. This is a command in the plural. Pray. Prasuk itai. This is a command in the plural. Give thanks. This is a command in the plural. All of them have the suffix E-I-T-E. It's a plural command for us. What the text is saying is, although individually we are to rejoice, we are to pray, we are to give thanks, it's saying that we as a church ought to be a church of rejoicing. We ought to be a church of praying We ought to be a church of giving thanks. We ought not be a church that's legalistic. We ought not be a church that looks down on others. We ought not be a church that makes extra biblical things the norm and the demand. We ought to be a church that rejoices that Jesus has come and is coming again. 
We ought to be a church that prays with expectancy that God will do things. We ought to be a church that looks at life and says, thank you, Lord, for this and that, and sees what God is doing in our midst. So the first is it's a command, all three of them. The second is it's in the plural. It's for us corporately. And the third is let's not forget the context. Paul is not having a good day. Paul's not having a good week. Paul's not having a good month. You remember that Paul is in Thessalonica, three Sabbaths, and then they have to hide him at night and get him out of the city because he's about to be tarred and feathered. He's about to become a martyr for the faith. He heads 40 miles south down the Aegean Sea to Berea, And rabble-rousers from Thessalonica hear that Paul has gone 40 miles south. And in a day in which you walk or you ride horse, they go 40 miles down after Paul and 40 miles back, 80 miles round trip, just to stir up another city against Paul. We would expect that Paul would not be talking about rejoicing and giving thanks. He might be talking about praying, praying vengeance, but not thanks. And yet that's the context. Let me read it to us out of Acts 17, verses 1 to 13. Listen to what God's word says. And when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews, excuse me, Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, it's kind of an old word, it means an unruly crowd, they formed a mob, so they went from an unruly crowd to a mob. They're making progress. Set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. They shouted, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That is, this is insurrection, but more than that, it's treason. They deserve to die. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, as we must, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, praise the Lord, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, traveling 40 miles south, learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
So think about this. It's not a good day. It's not a good week. It's not a good month. And Paul, writing about his experience in Thessalonica, writes to them and says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's not what we would expect. It might not be what we would offer. Let's suppose we're talking about another church, not Highland. And you're going home after church. And there's so many things you can say. I hated the worship. I don't know who chose those songs. And the drums were too loud. The singing was too quiet. Whoever was mixing the sound, ridiculous. And whoever was doing PowerPoint was like three slides behind. It was awful. And that sermon... D-O-A, dead on arrival. That thing was awful. And coffee. Yeah, they give the cheap stuff away, but they charge you for a cup of good joe. What do they think they are? Patina? I mean, they're, they're charging at church. And the chairs. Who would have paid $105 per chair bought several thousand of them through the years, and they're not even comfortable. I mean, what was somebody thinking? And have you noticed how they dress in that church? I think I saw some people in shorts. And the pastor who's preaching, he wears a golf shirt like he hits it like Dustin Johnson, which, by the way, I do. I pound it just like Dustin. (laughs) Paul writes, rejoice always. But it's not just one time. Let me read a smattering of other pages, other verses in Scripture. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 2 Corinthians 6, 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Philippians 2, 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4. rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice. I want you to notice something. Three of the six passages I just read coupled rejoicing and suffering. Would we do that? Would I do that? Merriam-Webster defines rejoice as a feeling of happiness based on circumstances that are going your way. But that's not how the Bible uses rejoice. It's not a feeling. It's a settled confidence. It's not a tigger's bounce. It's not we are giddy even in spite of circumstances. Romans 12, 15 says that we sorrow in sorrowful situations. We grieve in situations that require grief. 
But in the midst of that, we have a settled confidence that God is utterly, totally, completely, sovereignly in control. That God will work his good for those who love him and are called according to its purpose. Romans 8, 28, and we know, we're not guessing, we're not hoping, we know that God will work good, two conditions, for those who love him and those who walk according to his purpose. Sometimes I hear Christ followers and unbelievers say, in the midst of very sinful situations, oh, God must have arranged for this, something good will come out of it. That's not what the Bible says. And we know that God will work good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, those who are walking in his path. That's where God promises to work good. A few weeks ago, my uh, friend Jorge Santana, he's sitting in the middle over here. And by the way, uh, if you don't have Sunday school class today, uh, he is sharing in Sunday school uh, about what God is doing in the Dominican. And uh, he and his family, Stephanie and their child, are heading back in another week. So it's a great time to hear about him. Well, a few weeks ago, Jorge was preaching in Marathon. It was Labor Day, and we had three different people preaching at the three different campuses. And uh, I had the privilege of reading his message. It was uh, on building your life on the rock. And I not only got to read it, then I got to sit through his practice. And then after he preached it, it was videotaped. He and I sat down. Uh, we do that from time to time. He sat through three or four of these with uh, some of our co-workers. And he kept saying, oh, don't want to do this with you. Oh, he had nothing to worry about. Only four red pens were necessary that morning. No, none. It was, in a, it was a great sermon. And in it, he talked about Stephanie's cousin. And Stephanie's cousin apparently had some tests. I don't probably know all the details perfect, but he had a test and he had a, an envelope that told him what the test was and he opened it up and he read it and there was a small smile on his face. And so his family that apparently were gathered around all thought the best. And then they looked at it and and he had cancer. And his family began to cry. And he said, no, no. No. God's going to work this for good. Maybe I go home to glory. Or maybe I'm healed. But God is going to work this for good. That's an understanding. That all things work together for good. For those who love God. And those who are called according to to its purpose. That's why Paul can say, rejoice always. It's not this giddiness. It's not Tigger's bounce. It's not always smiling during tough situations. It's a belief. It's a confidence that if we're walking with the Lord, if we know the Lord as Savior, God will work something good in the midst of a difficult and trying situation. Rejoice always. Notice the second phrase. It says pray. Or excuse me, it says, uh, yeah, um, not pray, uh, uh, give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
Notice the word in. It happens to be the Greek word en, E-N. So now you know how to say in in Greek, en. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, does it? It says give thanks in all circumstances. We're not giving thanks for cancer. But we're giving thanks that if we know Jesus, we're going home to glory or we're going to be cured or in the midst of it, we'll give our testimony to some others and we can testify to Christ. It means in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of our circumstances, we can find a silver lining, we can find a gold lining because we have confidence that all things work together for good. For those who love God, those who are called according to its purpose. Paul, I don't think, is giving thanks for the mob. I don't think he's doing that. But he was driven out of Thessalonica, went down to Berea, and many leading men and women came to Christ. That's the silver lining. That's the gold lining. And in Berea, he was driven down. And so he goes further down. And eventually he will make his way to Athens. He will make his way to Corinth. And the gospel will continue to spread. Is he thankful for people who are trying to take his life? Not really. Is he thankful for being driven out on a rail? Probably not. But he's thankful for what God did and will do through the situation if we love God and if we are walking according to its purpose. Now we could say, well, Paul... You're kind of Pollyanna, but that won't work. We've already read Acts 17, but it won't work for any of his life. Paul had a rather difficult life. Let me read just a little bit about it in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. Now in the context, Paul is writing about church attenders who are slandering him. Actually, he's writing about church leaders who are slandering him. He's writing about people who have influence who are slandering him. That's the context. Let me now read it. Are they servants of Christ? It's actually a question written in a fashion that demands the answer, not really. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And then he goes on to tell us what his life is like with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he didn't even live in Colorado. Okay. That was bad. Three times. Can I even say that in church? Well, I sent two guys up with a jouster hat, so I can do whatever, I guess. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there's the daily pressures on me of my anxiety for all 
the churches. That's Paul's life. And yet in the middle of that, God has him write, Rejoice always, in all things give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He has eyes to see what God can do. It might be a Christ follower who wrongly loses her or his job. And we're not thanking God to lose our job, but we can thank God that we have one prior and where he's sending us in the future and how he will provide for us in the midst. It might be a Christ follower who loses a spouse who also knows Jesus. And in the midst of our grief, we thank the Lord that that loved one has gone home to glory and someday we can be reunited. It might be at a funeral of someone we don't know where their eternal destiny is. And yet we can thank the Lord that we have the opportunity to testify to Christ in the midst of a funeral because it's possible at such times people will listen when they might not listen in another scenario. It's looking for the silver lining. It's looking to see what God can do. We can rail against our government or we can be thankful that we don't live in an oppressive environment, not historically compared to many throughout history. We can rail against our taxes and many of us might grouse a little bit. But we can thank the Lord that we have roads and we have national parks and there are some tangible expressions of what we're paying for. We can find a silver lining. We can find a gold lining. We can see what God is doing in the midst. It doesn't say that we have to give thanks for everything, but in every situation. And Ponta, in all situations, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. To rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances, kind of rules out a legalistic church. It kind of rules out extra biblical rules. It kind of rules out negativity. It kind of rules out slandering and undercutting. It kind of rules out grousing and bitterness. It kind of rules out hatred. It rules those things out. Now, we are to be biblical. We are to stand firmly on the truths of Scripture. But we do so with an attitude that is pleasing to the Lord, one that rejoices and one that gives thanks. And finally, one that prays. Verse 17 goes on to say, pray without ceasing. Like the rest, we could say this has got to be hyperbole. I mean, who can pray without ceasing? Yet it is an oft-repeated command in Scripture. Let me just read three verses. Luke 18, 1. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, be watchful in it, with thanksgiving. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It's kind of like perhaps being in love. If you're in love, you think, oh, man, I can't wait to see her. Maybe I'll text her. 
Can't wait to see her. Can't wait to call her. Wonder what she's doing right now. Wonder what she's reading or eating, where she is. And it's this going through life with a constant awareness of where your beloved is. That's what it means to be constant in prayer. I think of the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, we have Nehemiah, the cupbearer, kind of like the prime minister. And he's in the citadel of Susa. He's about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. He's never been to Jerusalem, but it's the city of his ancestors. And he hears that the city, Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the walls are in ruins. And so as the prime minister, it's kind of his job to always be jovial, always be pleasant and smiling in front of the king. And the king sees him, Artaxerxes sees him and says, hey, you're frowning in my presence. What's going on? That's a capital offense, by the way. Do you remember what the text says? He prays to the king before he talks to the earthly king. He sends up a little SOS prayer. And he says, oh king, how can I be happy when the city of my ancestors lay in ruins? And because of that conversation, he is granted permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. That's the, the constantness of prayer. It's walking through life and saying prayers. It's, it's walking through life and saying, Lord, what should I do? How should I respond? What should I say? When you get a, a text with an attachment and you know the attachment is improper, yeah, say a little SOS prayer, ask for the breastplate of righteousness, and you hit delete. When someone's engaged in improper talk, you say a little SOS prayer, and without being arrogant or holier than thou, you, you exit the talk, or if you know someone well enough, you, you come alongside and, and you together conquer some of these tendencies to speak inappropriately with gentleness and humility. It's going through life, saying, Lord, that person just cut me off, and, and I've got a favorite gesture for him. But Lord, I'm going to pray first. What would you have me do? It's going through life with little SOS prayers, constant chatter, constant communication with the Lord. And Paul says, what I want, no, no, scratch that. What God commands, not just individuals, but his congregation, in spite of circumstances, is that we rejoice always. That we are constantly giving thanks in all circumstances. And that we pray without ceasing. That's the kind of relationship God wants with us. And that's the kind of demeanor he wants Christ's followers individually as families and as a corporate family to put on. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the words that you inspired, that Paul wrote, that are timeless, truths that we need in our life, we need in our families, we need in our church family. We need to exhibit publicly. Help us to rejoice always, not giddy, tigger-like, 
but a settled confidence. Giving thanks, not for everything, but in the midst of everything. And to be prayer people, prayer warriors, who when we gather in small groups, connection care group, or a staff, or a missions committee, or an elder group, or a small group, when we gather, remember to pray for one another in our community, and evangelistic outreach, and missions, and our government, and your impact in our world. Help us to be those kind of Christ followers. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.